Today we're reading in the book of Mark, chapter 12, 13 through 17, and that's on page uh, 495 in the blue Bibles on the back of the chair. So if you don't have a Bible at home and you would like to have one, feel free to take this one. <clears throat> Mark, chapter 12, 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Thus says God's word. Lord, we just thank you that you have gathered us together as a church this day. And we thank you that we have the freedom to explore the riches that you've placed in your word together. We thank you for the hearts and minds of the people here that desire to read corporately, study corporately, and take the sacraments together. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing that is this church. Lord, we just ask that as we explore these short Four but profound passages, Lord, that their shortness, uh, the, 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 the depth of these passages w- would come out as we dig deep into the word. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would aid us in that, that we would understand more clearly and fully what it is you're telling us through these passages this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Anybody, historically, that has gotten these four passages, sort of a running joke. Um, Because although short these passages may be, they are very, very profound, and they tend to be very, very tricky. And this passage oftentimes is abused. I'm not going to say more than any other passage out there, but this passage is frequently abused, and it's abused, and it's abused some more. And you have a wide range of different opinions as to how to interpret these passages. And I'm going to do my best this morning to give you an accurate biblical interpretation of these passages. And anybody that knows me knows that this preaching assignment is very ironic. Uh, And I'm going to do my best also to respect this pulpit and not get myself in trouble. So in these passages, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, we find ourselves once again in the last week of Christ's life prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. See, in the course of his ministry up until this point, what has he done? What have we seen Christ do with all of his signs and wonders? He's cured the sick by his own authority. He's forgiven sins by his own authority. He's cast out demons by his own authority. He's shown his power over death and nature. He's raised the dead. He's walked on water. He's calmed the winds. He's done incredible and amazing things. He's demonstrated who he is time and time again in front of crowds and close friends. 
And when confronted or slandered, he always showed his intellectual and spiritual superiority by correctly interpreting and applying Scripture. Jesus was never wrong, not one time. He was the best debater that has ever walked the earth. He is the best debater till to this day. He rules and reigns right now. That's one thing I, I, I dislike sometimes when we, we just, when we harp on the history and the things that Jesus did, we almost, we almost talk about Christ like He's not here. And in a sense, that's true, His physical body is not here. But we have to remember that the same Jesus that we're talking about in these passages is the same Jesus that owns everything that rules and reigns as we sit here. He's listening to this conversation. You know, this is why we seek to honor Him. This isn't something that, uh, He, He is, is lacking in. He's just as present present with us now in spirit. See, Jesus had shared truths about earthly and heavenly life that the world had not yet understood. And he had done all of this at a particularly tumultuous period of Jewish history. Every moment along Christ's ministry, he found himself at odds with the ruling authorities and even publicly called them out for their many sins. Last week, as we explored the parable of the tenants, uh, he was he was not concerned with being polite. He called them murderers, right? He put the blood of the prophets and all of those that had been ruthlessly murdered for preaching the truth, right? He put the blood on the heads of those in the parable of the tenants. He called them murderers and the Jewish rulers, obviously, they did not appreciate that things are escalating at a fever pitch where they have decided Jesus is too problematic and he needs to die. See, the Jewish people also, and this is something that most people don't understand, the Jewish people are longing for the prophesied Messiah. Today we are so ignorant in our secular culture of what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus Christ that we really don't understand the mindset of the Jews that were watching these events unfold. We don't understand it. Also, modern prophecy culture, which we're not going to get into today, has done a disservice to the Old Testament passages through what I, I believe dispensationalism is in great error in the way that it, it pulls and cherry-picks passages and creates sort of a picture of Christ's return that's not fully accurate. What we have in, in the Old Testament is we have Jews that understood their Bible. And there were lots of things in the Old Testament that predicted a coming Messiah. The book of Daniel, another book that's abused in many ways, not only gave us a 490-year time frame waiting for the Messiah, but also told us the conditions that the Messiah would return in. Uh, in Daniel's statue, we had the, the iron mixed with miry clay. Miry clay. Uh, essentially, what you have is a Roman occupation that's being, that's being uh, prophesied about. You have a foreign occupation that's being prophesied about in here. We have Christ coming in a time of Roman occupation, 490 years to the day. People carried around the book of Daniel in their minds, almost like we do with the book of Revelation. They were waiting. They were hungry. They didn't enjoy the Roman occupation. They wanted their prophesied Messiah. We know this is true um, also as with the story of Jesus' birth. Herod, Herod the Great, uh, when the um, uh, Hasmonean dynasty came to an end in, in Rome and put Herod the Great in place, what was it that uh, when the, the star appeared in the sky over Bethlehem, what was it that Herod the Great did? He called all the scribes and the chief priests together and he said, where is the king of the Jews born? Right? Everybody was primed and waiting. The star in the sky indicated that the Messiah had come, the king of the Jews. And he told him, if you find him, let me know. I want to go and worship him too. You see the mentality and what did he want? to do he wanted to make sure that he died right 
the life of Jesus, not for one moment, since the moment that he donned earthly flesh here was not fraught with danger, the world wanted to destroy him. And at the beginning of the week, the week that we're talking about historically right now, the same week that Jesus has proclaimed, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and the gods to gods, at the beginning of this very week, people had lined the streets as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, crying out, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. You understand the mentality of these people? They're waiting. They're ready. They want a Messiah. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus met the description of every Old Testament pas- passage prophesying his appearance. And this is what happened. The same way that Herod the Great, Herod the First, wanted Jesus dead just by looking at the star in the sky that heralded his coming. The corrupt religious element here, they knew that they knew that this Jesus posed a threat to their power. They knew that he posed a threat to their social status, their finances, their overall way of life. And in response to their fears and humiliation, we find ourselves this morning smack dab in the beginning of a series of three distinct plots that are set to pit Jesus either against the people or the Roman government. This is the beginning of a final solution, so to speak, in eradicating Jesus' presence and eliminating the threat. We find ourselves in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in this talk. Well, who are the they? That's important. The they in this passage refers to the Sanhedrin, which was a group of 70 men, the equivalent of a Jewish Supreme Court. It consisted of different religious sects within Jerusalem, um, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. When you dig into the history of the Sanhedrin, you'll find that it is um, just as complicated as trying to... It'd be like trying to explain politics today to someone 2,000 years from now. How do you explain the last four years you know, to somebody that just doesn't understand the cultural nuances and the political nuances of everything you and I have lived every second of every day? Well, the same thing is true here. The entire background of this passage is riddled with complexity. Cultural nuance, political nuance, religious nuance. Um, you know, the Sadducees were primarily a priest class. Uh, the Pharisees uh, were primarily... Um, uh, the, every aspect of the Sanhedrin was well off in Jewish society. Uh, the scribes were your doctors, your academics, your lawyers, so to speak. Um, and essentially, when you when you dig into the history of the Sanhedrin, you'll see that they were broken up into three distinct parts. You had your priest class, you had your scribes, and you had your ancients. And when you look at the records and the extra-biblical records of all of those men that are still named to this day as being a part of this, you'll start to notice a lot about their lives, and it, it highlights a significant amount of corruption. See, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they differed, they differed in their, their theology and their social status, but they carried a great deal of respect within Jewish culture. Um, the scribes were the lawyers of sorts, the experts in God's law, and the Herodians, who were mentioned here in this passage, were a smaller minority, not members of the Sanhedrin, that supported the political agenda, agenda of Herod the Great, who assumed the throne over Judea, with the help of the Romans. Over time, the territory of Herod the Great was split into four different quadrants. So Herod the Great, the one that wanted Jesus dead at the beginning, he had a great territory. As he had children and he died, his territory was split up into four different sections. And the territory that we're in today, the territory that is under uh, is in the jurisdiction that Jesus Christ is operating, is under the jurisdiction of Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. 
See, students of history will find that the Herods were not really Jews. This is another part of complexity in the context here. They weren't really Jews, but rather they existed as loyal subjects to the Roman state. They had been placed there by the Roman state. They had been given their authority as a reward for their loyalty. All intents and purposes, the Herodian family might as well have been one with Rome. The Pharisees, being legal purists, they stood very much opposed to Roman Gentile rule. Anybody that has studied the history in the Old Testament knows that Jews were to keep themselves separate from Gentiles. So much so that if you came into contact one, you had to scrub your body down before you could eat your food, right? They were that unclean. Unclean, unclean, that was a word that was used often. And here, in one of the most unclean ways, they were being governed and ruled by Gentile scum. It was despicable. It was was an abomination. Not only were there theological differences, but there were political differences as well. Interestingly enough, we find that the same level of corruption amongst the rulers in the Sanhedrin as we do in the Herodian family. Rome didn't just appoint uh, the Herods. Rome had begun appointing the positions in the priesthood. You know, the Sadducees, which were incredibly well-to-do in that society, were mostly, largely, put into the position of the priesthood by Roman occupation. The same thing is true of some of the Pharisees and some of the scribes. Corruption was at a fever pitch. The Sadducees, which you'll find next week, they didn't even believe in heaven and hell. They had no supernatural worldview. The Sadducees rejected all forms of supernaturalism. Explain to me how you can have a priesthood comprised of a body of people that don't believe in a single thing that's supernatural. Can you? Would you ever want a pastor that takes the pulpit knowing that he doesn't think, he doesn't know any, he doesn't believe anything about what has been clearly depicted in scripture? They didn't believe in a resurrection of the body. This is, I don't want to get too much into whoever's preaching next week. But I can promise you this, as I'm trying to make this point about the corruption that existed without getting too nerdy, there is absolutely going to be no care and concern for the altar of God when you don't believe in an afterlife. How can you? The here and now is the reward, right? And the Sanhedrin was riddled with people that didn't believe their Bible, but were put there. Now these these priestly and religious positions are more largely symbolic because all of these positions have become political. What I'm trying to describe is the uttermost type of corruption in God's house. This is the worst. This is the worst. The Herodians working with the Pharisees in this passage, it actually exemplifies this age-old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They could not have been two different, there could not have been uh, two more different types of people that were working together. This was an extreme set of circumstances. And the more I explore the corruption that has been recorded in extra-biblical material, the more I'm convinced that what we're witnessing here is not just a brazen plot against um, Christ trying to protect uh, sort of a religious purist view, but I believe these men are so corrupt that they knew that this was Christ. They knew He matched the descriptions and it posed a threat to their earthly authority and they wanted to see Him destroyed. This wasn't, this, these were not men in my estimation that were trying to protect what they thought they understood about the scripture, hoping that the Messiah was coming. There might have been some of those there, but there were men so corrupt and political here, I think that they knew this was the Jesus that was prophesied. In the same way Herod the Great did when he saw the star and he called all the chief priests together and he said, where has the king of the Jews been born? 
And we, even though the, the idea of the king of the Jews may not sound like uh, supernatural, the fact that Herod wanted to worship him, I want to go and worship him, means that people understood exactly what this meant. And they understood exactly what the position of Messiah meant. The Bible makes it clear here that these two groups of men who differed greatly, they were sent. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin sent to them. What is it? When you look at this word, what you find is this word carries with it this apostolic image. Those that have ever studied uh, what it is to be an apostle, you'll know that Jesus didn't write anything down. We don't have anything by Jesus' own hand, but we do have apostles who were commissioned to speak on with his authority. When the apostles spoke and were bestowing upon us the revelation that the Holy Spirit was giving to them, they were speaking with the authority of God himself. They were speaking with the authority of Christ. As you look at this word sent, it's very clear that the Sanhedrin has sent these men with a sort of apostolic authority to speak in their stead. They are the authors of this particular attack. They are the authors of this corruption. What did they want to do? They wanted to trap him in his talk. You know, this is the fun part of expositing Scripture as we go through every Scripture very carefully because there is so much that gets lost in translation over the years. This word trap was not a light word. It's only used one time in the Bible. It's only used one time and it's used in this passage. And it describes the hunting of an animal. It's not like we're just going to hopefully trip him up. We're not going to try to make him look stupid. They are hunting him like one hunts a tiger that just took their child. This is not a, this is not a passive aggressive approach. This is sort of a, a, this is the beginning of the violent approach. They are hunting him. This is the word that the scriptures use. And in verse 14 it says, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know not that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This is a very clever question because it dialed in on a very culturally sensitive subject that often caused much division both theologically and politically. They phrased this question in a way that they believed Jesus would not be able to escape from it. They thought about this question prior to asking this question. They asked this question very specifically. It was the trap. This was a weapon that was part of the hunt. They began by flattering him and his reputation for speaking the truth. Did Jesus ever have a reputation for speaking falsehood? No. Jesus won every argument he was ever in. He was brilliant. He was the Word made flesh, right? Jesus was the Word made flesh, and in him no deceit or falsehood existed. Throughout his ministry, he destroyed the arguments and bad interpretations of Scripture held by all members of Jewish uh, of Jewish leadership. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. You know, like I said, this is the first of three different plots. Next, you'll see the Sadducees. After that, you'll see the scribes mount their attack. It's not over. Priests and high, pri- high priests, they couldn't hide from Christ because of their lofty position. That's mostly what they did. If the priests or high priests or the scribes or the Pharisees, if anybody came into conflict with each other or the general public, you know, you could flash that, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a religious leader. Flash the badge. You could play that card. You carried your clout on your sleeve. Jesus even mocked them the way they would tear their clothes and walk around moping, showing everybody how they was, they were fasting. They were very, very external and they would, instead of caring about the truth of scripture, they would dominate the conversation with their clout. Not one time did that ever work with Jesus. He had a reputation for cutting to the quick of every argument by always rightly applying the word of God. Every single time Jesus was challenged, he emerged victorious. 
Jesus' mind was never clouded by sin. This is our problem when it comes to rightly interpreting Scripture. Why do we have so many different types of sermons on these passages? Is because we're sinful creatures. We do not all interpret Scripture flawlessly like Christ did. Sin has a way of darkening the mind. When a, when a, when a human being like us reads the Scripture, we're looking at it through a clouded lens. Jesus did not have that disability. See, he saw everything clearly. It wasn't distorted. See, all the Jews were capable of producing on their own were distorted interpretations of God's law. That's what they're doing here. They're taking a distorted understanding of what they think they know, and they're going to try to catch Jesus with something that's ultimately fallacious. Minds darkened by the effects of sin, they stood no chance confronting Jesus. And so they always took the way of the religious hypocrite, which came with lying flattery. Be careful of the Christians that want to flatter you nonstop. Usually they're the ones that turn on you the fastest. You want friends that will tell you the way it is, right? They wanted to praise Christ's truthfulness, not because they were being sincere, but rather they very much wanted to announce his reputation before the crowd, hoping, why were they flattering? What were they hoping for? They were hoping that it would pressure him into answering the question the way that they had planned for him to. We know you always give it to us straight, Jesus. We know that popular opinion isn't something you're concerned with. We know that every time you have something to say, you say it no matter how many people you make, you make mad, Lord. We know you don't, it's like you don't even care about your safety here. So give it to us again this day. We've asked you this question and we want you to give it to us straight. Don't hold back. That's part of the plot, right? Everything they said was technically true, but their hearts had murderous intent. They may have had a smile on their face, but they were all holding knives behind their back as they asked the question. This tribute to Christ was not a real tribute. It was malicious in nature. Although it has brought Christ much glory and honor throughout the centuries, because it is still true, and we proclaim this truth to this day. This is where the trap comes in. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? I honestly can't imagine the amount of tension in that crowd. When you put yourself in the position of, of those people that understand all of the cultural stuff that's happening, how, uh, how serious the Romans are about making sure they get their taxes, I, I, you know, I'm not going to make a direct analogy today, but paying taxes even today is serious business. Not paying your money means you will end up in jail eventually. Well, it was quite a bit different back then. If you were somebody that encouraged uh, people not to pay your taxes, you wouldn't just end up in jail. You could very likely lose your head. The Romans didn't have a problem removing that from you. One of the reasons this was so complicated and such a frustrating thing, this issue of taxes to Caesar, is that you had Jews who were purists that were being overrun and ruled by Gentile occupation in the land that God had given them as their birthright. It was humiliating. They were forced to pay their conqueror taxes and tribute. No defeated nation has ever historically enjoyed paying the one that just dominated them their money. Money is representative of hard work and life's energy. It's why we take it so seriously. It's a reflection of the outpouring of our efforts and our blood and sweat. And here, this is their home. God gave it to them. They have the law. These people are filthy pigs. And I have to pay them my hard-earned energy. This is not okay for them. Even more so, even more so, the taxes here were married to a religious ideology, their love for Yahweh. This wasn't just an issue about money, it had a religious implication. Also, you know, when it comes to the idea of an occupation, 
Listen, when I was a young a young man, I don't tell too, I don't want to I don't want to dig too deep into this story, but when I was in the fifth grade, and I still I still don't know what this was. I've asked many people. Allie, we went to the same. We've been going to school forever together. In the fifth grade, I remember our entire class being taken into a band hall, and we were told that the Chinese had invaded and taken over the United States. That might sound like a tall tale. I don't know what part of the government program that came out of, but they gave us a sheet of paper that you had to like, it was one of those like optical illusions that you stare at or you highlight, and they, they said the Chinese were changing our flag to the colors yellow and green. Fifth grade. This sounds like a tall tale, but it is not. Am I wrong? Do you remember this? Vaguely. One person testifies to a vague recollection. I'll take it. If Kevin was here, I was hoping Kevin would know. I remember sitting there as this lady. As I don't, I don't know what program this came out of, or what they were. I don't remember what the conclusion was as far as them telling us this is why we did this exercise. It was very strange. It's still strange to me this to this day. But I remember holding a pencil because I was having to do the stupid worksheet as we're talking about the Chinese invading, and I broke it. I was so angry, and I remember all me and my friends were like, "We'll join in the Air Force tomorrow." We were in the fifth grade. We were so mad at the idea of a foreign occupation that we just couldn't stand it. Oh, it's not, it's not even worse for these Jews. See, many of the Pharisees, they believed that the Jews were under a moral obligation before God not to pay taxes, and they assumed that Jesus would hold the same position. See, if Jesus were truly godly, then how could he advocate the Jews pay taxes to such an ungodly nation? This is where the trap lies. If Jesus says, yes, you're obligated to pay taxes to Caesar, then the average Jew would turn on him. The same Jews who just welcomed him in with all the palm branches, right? These are the people that line the streets that they want to turn. See, these people believed Jesus was going to be their conquering Messiah, the one who would liberate them from the enemy, not, not acquiesce to it. So how could the one that would for, you know, bring about the, the liberation of the Jewish people ever tell you it's okay to pay taxes to this ungodly nation? See, if he answered, no, you're not obligated to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Sanhedrin could report him to Roman authorities and have him charged with sedition. Because you can't do that. So one way or the other, we're going to have the people turn on him, or we're going to have him guilty of treason, and we're going to have Rome put him to death. There's a reason why they needed Rome to put him to death, but it's a story for another day. In verses 15 and 16, it says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. This is where the profoundness of this passage really starts to take hold. There are deep-seated theological understandings that were present in this crowd that immediately they would have picked up on that some of us wouldn't. See, the manipulative nature of this question was not hidden from Jesus. Jesus understood exactly what was going on. The nature of the dilemma was a false one, right? We pay taxes or do we not pay taxes to Caesar, right? This was the dilemma. A false dilemma is one where only two options are presented where a third or more may be available. And when you study logic, you run into this issue of the false dilemma all the time. This is something that when you fail to recognize it, oftentimes it can, uh, it can, it, it'll, it, you'll lose an argument if you don't catch a false dilemma because you get pigeonholed into having to choose one or the other of, of you know, wrong options, right? F- false dilemma, uh, identifying false dilemmas are, are actually really important. Jesus absolutely did. He most certainly understand that this was a logical fallacy and you can almost hear the exasperation in his voice when he's asking this question he says to them whose likeness and inscription is this and they said to him caesar's 
I, I can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice. Give me a coin. Somebody have the coin. Who's got the coin? Because the purists aren't going to carry it. We know there are sympathizers of Rome there because they're carrying it in their pocket. The only time the Jews are carrying it is when they have to. I mean, it's not uncommon for a Jew to have one in his pocket, but he didn't like it. And here Jesus said, bring me a coin. Somebody just bring me a coin. Whose likeness and inscription is this? He wasn't fooled. It's the kind of exasperation you only hear from a man who's tired of being pestered by feeble attempts from lesser minds. So they were confident in themselves, but all, all Jesus, and they were so confident. But the only thing Jesus saw was a prideful display of rebellion. There were men that hated him. He immediately decides that he's going to end this encounter. He's not going to play around with it. He's done with it. It's clear from Scripture as Jesus gets this coin that he wasn't the one carrying it. And you'll know if you look at history, the, the Jews, they weren't allowed to mint coins out of gold or silver. They were only allowed to mint their own coins out of copper, which is what made the money trading in the temple such a lucrative business. Because you would have Jews that had Roman coins that they needed to pay taxes, but you can't pay the taxes in the temple with these gold and silver coins that are idolatrous. And so you would get these Jewish coins that were worth less at exorbitant prices, and you could offer that as your tithe and offering. This is one of those, you know, Jesus flipped the tables in the temple twice over issues related to this. This is a big deal. But more than that, it's also controversial because on this silver coin, the denarius, it had the image of the current Caesar Tiberius. And it also had several things written on it. On one side, it said Tiberius Caesar Augustus. And on the other, it said Pontificus Maximus. On the one side, it said son of the divine Augustus. And on the other, it was the supreme high priest. Here, they were on the coin itself, the money. They were attributing a God, a God status, divinity, to the Caesar, to the current Caesar. And not just, not just, not just in a passive way. We're talking about the imperial cult of Rome. The Caesar knew it. It wasn't just symbolic. He also, I mean, over time this developed, but see, there were, there were times in Christian history where Caesar, uh, had, you had to say Caesar is Lord. You know, this is where the Christians, uh, historically started yelling and at the top of their lungs, Jesus is Lord. This is, he, he, he knew exactly what was going on. He believed himself to be God and he accepted worship and it was awful. It was awful. This is what the coin stood for. Um, See, if you understand Jewish history, calling this a slap in the face is an understatement. The Jews saw this as outright blasphemy. Now, you and I don't really have that problem. We don't ever have to use money that we consider outright blasphemous, right? But if you take a look at it from their perspective, this coin, it was as unclean as every Gentile had ever been. It might have, you might as well have been eating pig. It was blasphemous to participate in any sort of worship associated with the, the imperial cult, especially an imperial cult who had a man standing there saying he was God. What did God give them in, their, in, the, in, in the Ten Commandments? In the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. In the second commandment, you shall make no graven image. I mean, they knew this. They knew this by heart. And here we have some sort of weird... Uh, lesser God-man. There's nothing on a coin that they have to use. This is a, fr- a flagrant and rebellious violation of God's law. It's a violation of the Ten Commandments. This is a violation of the Decalogue. Caesar not only demanded their money, but he demanded that they acknowledge him as Lord. He demanded their worship. So you see, you see now why this question of asking whether or not they needed to pay taxes to Caesar, understanding what the denarius is and understanding what Caesar is claiming to be, you understand now why they believe that they have pigeonholed Jesus into the perfect dilemma. What did Jesus say to him? He didn't say what they were expecting. 
So Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus acknowledged that both the image and the inscription on the coin, these were Caesar's. The fact that the coin had to be and was used by all peoples under Roman occupation, this implicitly affirmed Caesar's authority over the land. Jesus acknowledges this. He says, whose image is on this coin? It's Caesar's. It's his coin. Give the money to Caesar, but give your worship to God. This was not what they expected. Why? Because their minds are darkened. They're sinful. They don't understand the truth. Jesus here is capable of making a distinction. I can almost envision this tension in the audience. Just trying to process what he just said. Like, what did he say? That wasn't what we expected. Trying to, you know, what does that mean? Okay, you know, I don't know how many of them really understood their scripture or not right there in that crowd, but I, I believe a lot of them did. It was a shocking moment where Jesus actually, he provides this wise answer and he defeats the false dilemma. He defeats it just like that, like it's nothing. See, Jesus wisely provides the people with a theological distinction, distinctions that are ever-present and absolutely necessary when you study the Word of God. I loathe this secular culture where distinctions don't matter. I get tired of having conversations theologically where distinctions are not allowed. I hate just having to be superficial and shallow every time we talk about important things. Jesus wasn't like that. He was the best at it. He would keep it simple. He'd make distinctions where they need to be made. Not a single person could argue with him. Distinctions are essential when it comes to understanding the truths that God has given us. This particular distinction that Jesus presented is is one distinction that separates two categories in question into their proper places. And this is where, this is where people like to get themselves in trouble because we have to talk about these distinctions. Jesus uses the concept of image to imply ownership of the thing the image resides on. Caesar's image on the money means Caesar owns the money and the money is owed to Caesar. Then he immediately applies the same logic to God, inferring something that every Jew there should know. He's implying that that which bears God's image belongs to God. Every man standing there would have been familiar with Genesis 126, where God declares man is made in his own image. See, Jesus reveals the nature of civil authority in relationship to God's authority in a way that they did not expect. Caesar had authority to levy taxes, and it was justified. He was justified in expecting that those taxes be paid by everybody that was under the umbrella of his rulership. But as the ordained civil authority in the land... Caesar's authority did not extend into the realm of ownership over the people or their worship. Caesar may have owned the coin, and he may have had the authority to charge a tax, but he did not own a single person that was there. There is a place where his authority stops. Caesar had no authority to claim the mantle of August, which was not a name, it was a title. It's where the divinity in that passage, in that title comes from. He was unjustified by expecting any form of worship from anyone. Jesus commands that we pay him his money he's owed, but his subjects to him were not to give him what's not properly his, but rather what is properly God's and God's alone. The use of image here is everything. This is a profound topic. If we extrapolate out from this and we expand its implications for our lives today, what does this mean? And just this passage about the separation of these two authorities, God and Caesar. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to stick to my notes or else I will run away. 
See, if we extrapolate out from this, it means that in matters of spiritual things, the ruling authorities have no business enforcing laws that pertain to how Christian institutions as designed by God function. They have no authority there. Not where God has made his mind clear. And simply put, this means that the government does not have authority bestowed by God to license or ordain preachers. Why do I say that? It's like, well, we don't deal with that today. I don't have to go get a license to preach. Well, it's happened a lot. When you study church history, the you can't preach unless you get a license from the bishop. That has been something that has happened over and over and over again. And oh, by the way, if we don't like the sermon that you're preaching and the interpretation of scripture that you're you're preaching, then we're going to can you, we're going to take your license. And then if we can't catch you preaching again, we're going to put you in jail. And if we let you out of jail and you continue to preach, then we're going to kill you. That's how that's gone historically. Absolutely not. Especially today. If you ever start to see a movement that way, every Christian should be on their feet and activated. Because we know what happens when those kind of policies are implemented. There's a separation in authority there. Ruling authorities do not have God's blessing to manage the nature in which a church honors and observes the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. If if the health department came in and said, you're not using the right amount of, of, of chlorine in your baptismal water, we have every right to stand up and rebel against that. They do not get to tell us how we implement baptism and the Lord's Supper. They don't get to come in and say, wine is all of a sudden illegal. You have to pay us a tax to use it in your, you know, uh, in in your uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Absolutely not. You don't get to tell us what we can and cannot use when we administer the sacraments. The government has no authority there. There are a lot of implications to what I'm saying. You can take many, many variables and, and, and craft your own picture of what the government does and does not have authority with. It does not have the authority to shut the church doors. It does not have the authority to tell you when you can and cannot gather in worship. It does not have that kind of authority. Yeah, anyway... I'm being as respectful of this pulpit as I can, but I'm sure we can all think of implications to what I'm saying. The covenantal people of the Lord are only obligated to submit to the authority of the state when the state is issuing laws that are within the sphere of authority that God has commissioned to them. That's it. This is Kyperian sphere sovereignty laid out. Family doesn't have the right to overstep. You have three spheres. The church, the state, the family. The government does not have the, the right to overstep into the family or the church. The church does not have the right to overstep into the family or the state. And the family does not have the overright to step, it does not have the right to overstep into either of the other two spheres. It does not have, we all have our sovereign spheres of things that God has placed us in charge of and we're responsible for that. If the church says your family is no longer allowed to wear red shirts, you do not have to listen to that. You do not, that is not, that is, that is job of, that is the job of the dad to decide what his family wears. Right, the government doesn't have the right uh, to to do a lot of the things that I just said, and and vice versa. The church also doesn't have the right to step in and start to talk about just how exactly the government has chosen to execute the death penalty. Now, it can offer its ethical and moral advice based on Scripture, and the government would be wise to listen to the church, but it doesn't have the right to overstep. Examples of this historically are the Scottish Covenanters of 1638, right? A whole lot of history here we're not going to get into, but they pledged to resist any of the king's efforts to introduce anything into the Scottish church that would ruin the purity of worship as God had defined it in Scripture, as well as all things pertaining to God given liberties, laws, and states. Their rallying cry was for Christ's crown and covenant all the way to the gallows. 
This example and diligence in being faithful to God's distinctions in the roles and performance of church, state, and family produced literature that led to the American Revolution. If you study the French Revolution versus the American Revolution, one led to a, a, a wonderful blessing of an increased time of productivity and, and spirituality and the church and the gospel it flourished. And the French Revolution led to a period of existential darkness and dread. It's because they were very different types of revolution. One was justified, one wasn't. There's a lot more in that in that packet, but um, we this godly understanding of the distinctions and the roles and the performance of church, state, and family. This produced literature that led to the American Revolution. The king had no right to tax, and there were many peaceful options that had been implemented up until that point. Take the tax. We're not going to be taxed by you. You have no jurisdiction here. It wasn't that we're going to reject the tax. It was you don't have the authority to levy the tax. This is where the American Revolution started. Culminated in, in the Boston Tea Party, right? And even the lock that was broken to throw the tea away, it was replaced. Those men did everything by the book that was within their sovereign uh, right to do, and it was in accordance with Scripture. John Knox, Junius Brutus, Samuel Rutherford, historically, they're all examples of people that produced works that systematically laid the foundation for what's not known today as Puritan resistance theory. What I'm talking about it from the 30,000-foot worldview is Puritan resistance theory, which is, is, is steeped in Scripture. See, history is important here because the natural tendency of all earthly authority, if it is not in submission to God, is to expand and eventually overstep. See, the history of the church is filled with examples of kings and queens that wanted to unite and shape corporate worship in a manner that seems fitting to themselves rather than being primarily concerned with what God had commanded them. They didn't care what was God's and what was properly his alone. They wanted to do it their way. Does worship belong to Caesar? Is Caesar's image on you or me? Nope. It belongs to the one whose image we bear. Our worship belongs to God and God alone. See, God is the one who birthed both forms of government, earthly and heavenly. He birthed that. This is his design. He's the one that set the restraints on it. He's the one that placed it under natural law. It was never given the freedom to rule as it pleases. Romans Romans 13, another of the most abused passages I've ever seen in my life. Romans 13 makes it clear that a government's established role is for the earthly and heavenly benefit of the people by rewarding what is good and punishing what is evil. It wields a sword on behalf of God, ruling in his stead and executing justice when necessary. See, John Knox, when conversing with Queen Mary about the potential violent uprising of her Christian subjects in opposition to her tyranny, he said, I don't remember exactly how he referred to her, but Queen, if you and I were both obedient to God, a violent rebellion would not be necessary. Supplies to the family too. Supplies to every avenue of any, any sort of, any sort of sphere that has authority. If everybody that is in their roles are obedient to God, we will get along swimmingly. There should really not be a tug and pull between the church and the state. There shouldn't. Because if we're operating in obedience to God, we'll be doing our jobs and we won't be overstepping. But it's important to know what those jobs are. It's, a, it's important to know where the separation is. It's, a, it's important to know where the boundaries are. You know, in a household, if a father goes mad, is it wrong for the child or the children or the family to attack, you know, to subdue the father and tie him up and bind him? Under any other circumstances, maybe. But if he's gone mad, he deserves it. Under natural law, they have the right to self-preservation. It's it's okay inside of a household at times for a violent rebellion against a father if he's lost his mind. It's really no different. A, a mother and a father carry the same type of authority, if not more so, in a, in a smaller unit than any king or queen has ever had over a kingdom. 
See, when ruling authorities overstep, God has allowed for rebellious responses proportionate to the threat. Proportionate, proportionate to the threat. Proportionate is the word. But that's a topic for another day. Even if the ruling authority produces laws that are in bad taste or disagreeable, as long as it is not disobedient to God's expressed commands or his moral character, then they are justified in enacting them. And when they do, those laws carry the full weight of God's authority himself. Sometimes bad rulers are God's judgment to a stubborn and sinful people. It's too easy for people who want change and accountability in the name of God to attempt to bring it about in a sinful and in a justified manner. This is true of the rebellion of, of Libna in the Old Testament. It's a sort of a nuanced study, but it was a rebellion on all fronts. They probably had the moral high ground, but they were wrong in the way they executed it, and God did not bless that. God allowed them to be defeated. Um, it's very easy today for people to get swept up in this idea of, of, of a revolution or change, but they have no idea how the, the things that God has already orchestrated and how to go about them. See, many of the locals, this, this is true of the text in Mark. The reason why we're getting to this point is all of this is true of what was happening in the book of Mark. Many of the locals, they were frustrated with what they believed were unjustified abuses of the Roman government and an abuse of taxation. The taxation abuse, there were abuses of taxation there. But violent uprisings, they'd already occurred and they'd been violently quelled by Caesar's sword and rightfully so. Jesus wisely defends the justified nature of those taxes because he understands the distinction. He rightly justifies the nature of these taxes and he commands that the taxes be paid. Pay Caesar your taxes. And I have I have to say it. I have to say it. You are commanded by God to pay your taxes. Because when taxes are levied, no matter how unjust they seem, the fact that the government is given that authority means it carries the full weight and authority of God. If they have the authority to execute those taxes, then we are under obligation in obedience to God to pay them. Now, if they don't have the authority, but they claim they have the authority, we can challenge that from one end of the world to the other. We can go to war over it. We have But we have to understand the difference. We have to understand the difference. Or else we find ourselves on the end of rebellion that God does not bless. Many, many Jews lost their heads historically because they decided they'd rightly stand opposed to Rome. But they they didn't didn't have the authority. See, the hypocrisy here was as these men are trying to challenge Jesus, right? They didn't actually care about wisdom or justice. As we'll later find out, they cared so little about justice that they broke close to 30 of their own laws in prosecuting Jesus. They lied. They blasphemed. They actually later in Luke 23, 2, they say, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. We all just heard Jesus say, Pay your taxes to Caesar. That wasn't good enough. They had to find a way to kill him. They lied. We know exactly what Jesus said. The most important part of Jesus' instructions here aren't about paying ruling authorities the taxes they're owed, though. It is important. It is a fundamental truth. But I, I don't, as I look at this passage, I don't, I don't see that as the thing that sticks out to me, as the thing that, that it, it affects me as much. The most important part of Jesus' instructions here is that we owe to God what is God's. God's image being stamped on each and every one of us means that we must honor God by giving Him what He is owed, chiefly and above all. And if we are obedient to God, then we will pay our taxes. See, if we're first and foremost concerned with being in submission to the authority of God, then we will render to the ruling authority what is also theirs. But we'll also know what is not. 
The saddest thing about this passage to me is that these men marveled, right? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render unto God the things that are God, and they marveled. They marveled. What does that mean? I don't hear a lot talked about. That's actually the saddest part of this passage to me. Why? That might sound strange. You know why that makes me sad? Because they marveled and they did not repent. There was no repentance there. They are just like, wow, he's smarter than we thought. Dang, that was a good answer. I cannot believe we didn't see that coming. Was that repentance? Oh, you got me again. No, that's not repentance. The men who sat at Jesus' feet that day, they should have felt a prick in their heart. They should have cried out like the men in Acts 2.37. What did the men in Acts 2.37 do after they heard the gospel? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? They heard the gospel. They realized their state. What were they told? Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Not one man cried out, what shall we do? Oh, you with wisdom. Every time we have conversations, you school us. What do we do? No, they marveled. They doubled down on the plan. Next come the Sadducees. Instead of giving to God what was God's, they were only concerned with destroying what was God's for their own earthly gain. To so rebelliously stand opposed to what was God's for selfish gain. This is the easiest way to find yourself in hell. This is the easiest way to incur the wrath of God. It's the easiest. Just stand in rebellion to God until the day of your life, only looking out for yourself. There's really not a faster way to get there. If you want to get there quick, that's the way to do it. The hypocrite serves God for blessings only, right? Uh, the hypocrites will serve God only for the loaves and the fishes that he can, that he can make out of thin air. You know what happened to Rome? It was completely obliterated about 40 years after this. Destroyed. All the prophecies came true. God held them accountable. At one point in time, our Lord and Savior, He was crucified at the end of this week. But there were points and periods of time in the destruction of Rome where you had hundreds of thousands of men crucified and skewered out on the hills outside the walls. Fields of dead bodies. People do not understand the depth of the gore and violence that took place in the siege of Jerusalem over a period of seven years. They don't understand it. Everything that Jesus said came true. Jesus died, and it's like, He wasn't the last one crucified, I'll tell you that. He was the only one crucified for our sins. But many, many men paid for their rebellious actions. If those men could have seen their own depravity, then Christ would have appeared all in all to them. If you and I could actually see how wicked we are, Christ would really be our all in all. We get tired of the uh, the morbid introspection of the Puritans, but one of the reasons why they saw Christ as all in all is because they saw themselves as the, the least of the least. Christ really is all in all when we see the sin that is in our heart. They couldn't see it. How often people marvel at the wisdom and power of God, but repentance is never to be found. We marvel at the stars when we look up at night. We don't repent. We marvel at natural disaster. We don't repent. We marvel at genius scriptural insights and pastors with great oratory skills. But we don't repent. We marvel at the story of the cross. But we don't repent. See, let this passage be a reminder to all of us that we are to give God what's His. That means by we're obedient to God. Being obedient to God means fleeing to Christ from out of our open rebellion, and it means that we are to repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ and to never compromise with anything that would cause us to be disobedient to God. We don't compromise. We make our distinctions and we hold the line. He's to be our priority in all aspects of life and the things we're tasked over to steward. 
First Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that every one of us is as guilty as the worst and most corrupt character that sat in that crowd and tried to pin Jesus. We're no different than those men. In fact, if we had been there, we probably would have been on that side, apart from God's grace. Same thing today. Apart from God's grace, we'd be, we'd be wicked, 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 even more wicked. You know what? They're dead. Every man that was there that day, they're dead. They're dead. 2,000 years dead. I don't, know what, I don't know what the end of their story was. I don't know how many ever repented and, 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 and believed in Christ or the end of their life. I don't know. But you're not. You're not dead. We've seen historically what happened to those men. We saw their stubborn stance. They're dead. Some of them were murdered. Some of them survived to the siege of Jerusalem and then were brutally murdered. <laughs> I mean, brutally murdered. Here we sit at the feet of Jesus to, today and we hear that command to give, to give to God what is God's. You're not dead. You still have time. See, Christ sits ruling at the right hand of the Father calling men to give God what's His this very day, right now. Will you give God what is His today? If you don't know where to start, you can start with the Ten Commandments. That's a really good place to start exploring God's moral character. You don't know what you can't list the Ten Commandments? Go read them. Apply them to your life. Are you a liar? You find yourself to be a thief? Are you an adulterer? Where are these things that you're not giving God in our, in our lives? You know, you, I'm not going to judge you for you. That's a great place to start. It's a great place to start with trying to, re, to, to explore what kind of sin may be in our hearts. See, God's been pleased to reveal things that chiefly concern Him in Scripture. In all matters of life and worship, and all the kings and the queens and the Caesars and the pharaohs and every ounce of dirt that they ever collectively ruled, they don't weigh a feather. They don't even weigh a feather next to Christ in his kingdom. I would hope that as you think about what Christ told, told not, not what I'm saying, think about what Christ told those men. Think about what Christ told those men. Give God what is God's. Ask yourself, do you feel your heart pricked by that? Do you find yourself to be one of those that's rebellious, that you marvel at his wisdom, but no repentance is to be found? Well, if you find yourself to be a rebellious sinner, you're in the right place. Because there are lots of people here they would love to point you to the gospel of Christ. What shall you do this day? Well, we flee from our rebellion. We repent. We get baptized. And we receive the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I did not attempt to be dramatic. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the the, uh, the word that you've given us. And, uh, Lord, we're just so thankful that you're God who's cared enough to come in the flesh and to tell us these things, that we don't die without hearing them. And we thank you that today you've proclaimed it. We thank that you've, we thank you for all that you've done in, in making sure that the call is there. And we just ask that not a single heart uh, would leave this place without knowing the peace with God that only comes through the shed blood of your sacrifice, Father. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. We are about to receive the, the Lord's table. And um, I just want to uh, invite you, if you're a believer uh, in the Lord Jesus, if you have, as, 
As uh, Jared talked about, if you've repented uh, of your sin and believed in Christ, we want to invite you to come joyfully to this table to receive the elements of bread and wine and um, uh, representing the body and blood of the Lord Jesus and, and uh, 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 by an act of the Holy Spirit connecting us to his resurrected body and, uh, as a, and also connecting us with one another. That's why we call it communion. And so I would like to invite you, if you're not, a believer, if you are still um, considering the claims of the gospel and the call of the gospel, then we would like to invite you to just stay right where you're at um, and consider deeply these things and just do that with the assurance that we're praying for you. We're praying that you'll come to full belief in Jesus and can join us around this table. But for now, it wouldn't mean anything to you and um, it could actually be counterproductive to you according to the word of God. And so, uh, but for the rest of you, go ahead and come on and receive these elements, take them back to your seats, and then we'll take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks to the Lord for this great gift. Father, we thank you for giving Jesus to be the ransom for our sin. That he, the spotless Lamb of God, the one innocent, undefiled, harmless, was put to death after having perfectly obeyed all your law, living in in complete righteousness. And as Jared said, exemplifying not only the righteousness, but the wisdom of God and yet laid down his life, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord, as we examine our hearts, we find way too often that we are not walking in proper gratitude for this great gift. So Lord, as we renew our covenant in the cup and in the bread this morning, we we ask you, Lord, to to stir our hearts to great gratitude and tremendous thanksgiving for what you've done for us in Christ. And Lord, let this confidence in our in the grace that we've received and and our confidence in the promises of God and the promises of eternal life let those carry us and keep us throughout this week and we ask all this in Jesus name amen if you would place your hands in a receiving position i want to just speak over you this benediction this is the original And the Lord said, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.